It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA. Agent Ether. Agent Kruger. And Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Discord. Links in the description. This week's episode, The Lockbourne Air Force Base UFO. Ah, we're late. I was late there, Kruger, I, for some reason. I, <laughs> I'm late? What are you talking about? <laughs> no, no. I think he did fine. <laughs> I was, I was <laughs> trying to finish before that drum hit, but... Uh, oh, it, oh, my yeah. bad, my bad. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I was perfect. <laughs> I was on time. I was like the Chicago Bulls. I was there. That's oh. okay. I can I can cut that gap <laughs> later if I want. I'd probably okay. be too lazy to, but I could do it if I wanted to. Anyways, this week's episode... The Lockbourne Air Force Base UFO sightings and probably some other stuff too. Looking at the year of 1952 and just the sheer amount of sightings that have been, you know, that were reported that year, it's crazy. It's absolutely it's nuts. Yeah, it's, it's it's you know, and it's one of those things where, like, you know, as a as a fan of UFO, you know, encounters and stuff like that, and like, like just like I said, just the amount, like, it, it makes you really like. I mean, it's convincing. You know what I mean? Like, like you're like, how could you wish something... you were there? I wish I could yeah, oh, see this. Oh yeah. Oh, dude. If I had a time machine and I was able to observe, I I, I wouldn't uh, probably. I'd probably go back to when like the the pyramids were uh, built or something like that. But anyways, oh, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. go see some dinosaurs. But I would also like to see some UFOs too. You know that that explains the sighting is yeah. because oh. the sightings. Everybody in the future who has a time machine goes back to 1952 to view the sightings, and that's actually them in their time machines mm. causing the sightings. See, it's like Hot a dog, like a loop, you know, mm-hmm. or a paradox. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, paradox. Sure. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but like, like if you were a skeptic, like you have to look at like the you know all these damn reports and like, yeah, it could have been like a, a trend that got popular and people were just reporting things all the damn place, whatever light they saw in the sky, probably Venus. But like you know, um, it, just the sheer amount of reports and also some of them are very well documented as well. Like, and it's all over the damn world. Like, it's not just in, in um, the United States. Like, that year was a hot damn year for sightings, you know? Yeah. There was a ridiculous amount of sightings just, just in the United States. But like I said, worldwide as well, it's very convincing. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's uh, very compelling, you know, as far as the amount of stuff that supposedly happened that year. Uh, oh, holy crap. Like, how could you look at that and think, oh, it's all freaking weather balloons and, you know, the planet Venus. And, you know, but yeah, it's it's crazy. It's, it's the Milky Way. Well, especially yeah, yeah. there were there were a lot of sightings at not just you know the um, the uh, Air Force Base, but uh, different military compounds, and a lot of these sightings were from military personnel. So these witnesses, mm-hmm. they're they're really uh, I can't even talk today. Credible, credible. Thank you. <laughs> well, they're, they're credible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're not your average Joe. Not just witnesses, but we also have photographs we have radar readings we have you know radar the so-called radar visuals which is i think even better than photographs because you're getting a ping on something that's real in the spot where somebody is seeing it and then they can write their report and you can read what they said and you know because of the radar that it was actually there it's really good data 
And like you said, all over the world, we have photographs, we have multiple witnesses, military, civilian from everywhere. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, everywhere from like South Korea to Europe to, I mean, well, Korea just general, North and South, but like, um, I mean, all over the damn United States and all, all over the world, you know, I mean, it's, it's like I said, it's absolutely nuts how many sightings there were that year. If only we had our cell phones like we do today back then, you know? Oh, yeah. Although, I mean, yeah. Like cell phone footage, though, can be pretty oh, grainy sometimes. I, oh, yeah. Know, yeah. But, don't get me wrong, but it's a hell of a lot better than the. Yeah. The well, some of the pictures, you, eh. some of the pictures are pretty clear because they still had good, good photography, and, you know, at that time. I'm not saying like some of them are okay. You know what I mean? I think that the cameras they had back then would be better than cell phones. Have you ever tried to take a picture of something in the yeah. sky with your cell phone? The cameras they had that they would have been using would have been ha- would have actual like focal lenses on them. Whereas the cell phone, I've actually like one time I saw we're hanging out in our backyard during the summer, and I saw what looked like one of those giant mylar balloons. By giant, I mean uh, you know the ones you get at the grocery store. They're probably like I don't know three or four foot tall, like one of the big ones, right? And it appeared that it, like I'm guessing it had you know, launched from a park, somebody's having a birthday party and the balloon was let go or, you know, it untethered itself and it escaped and I saw it floating around and it was like, you know, like a shiny metal, like the silvery looking balloon. And I was like, that looks really weird. Like it's, so I'm going to pretend it's UFO. I, I knew it was a balloon. You could tell it was a balloon with the naked eye and it was, it was hard to tell how far away it was, but I'm guessing, I don't know, something like a third of a mile to uh half a mile, something like that. And it was probably, Two, three hundred feet up in the air. Let's just say ballpark. I, I recorded a video with my phone, and it was um, it was just you know your uh, what was it like a LG something or other. But it was decent. It was not a it was not a budget phone. It was like your medium grade phone. The camera on it worked just fine. You know everything else I'd ever photographed or taken a video of, it always looked you know looked fine. But this like it didn't even show up for some reason. And this thing was reflecting so much sunlight, it was actually uncomfortable to look at. But for some reason, the camera just didn't pick it up. I mean, you could kind of see that there was something there, but you couldn't see the shape. You couldn't see what it was at all. So that's why when, you know, people's skeptics will say, everybody's got a camera in their pocket. How come there's no good photos? Well, first of all, there's tons and tons of every single day we get new UFO videos and photos every day. But those cameras are so crappy that if it looks like a good video or picture, probably it's a hoax because those things just, it's set up for taking selfies, not for recording stuff in the sky, you know? I, I, I would argue that my phone now can definitely get stuff in the sky. I'm saying now phones, not, not, not the 2000s crap. <laughs> no, no, get that out of here. No, but I mean, on it, I was at an air show and that you could, I could definitely, I could send you a few photos, but I think sometimes the settings definitely help, but they didn't have that even in, you know, when I was on my Razor phone trying to take a video through a potato. Like, yeah. I, I'm not arguing against that at all. Like, I totally agree with you. No, no, this, this was not a Razor. This was not a Razor. This was like three or four years ago. No, like, oh, two, it was your LG. No, right? like three, yeah, yeah. no, I hear you. Yeah, it was like three years ago or something. It was not that long Those ago. Those are set to like capture in 1080 at most. If, yeah. yeah. Well, and once you use that zoom function as well, things be- become pixelated pretty fast. That, yeah, that's a, that's a it, digital I zoom. I wish yeah. I could show you guys my phone. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Lockbourne Air Force Base UFO sightings. I want to start with one in 1952. So this is a sighting. I I heard a mention of it somewhere. I forget exactly where I heard. I've read about it in a couple different places. 
So that's, I wanted to do the episode on it because, you know, it's one of these cases that I hadn't never heard of before, but, you know, you hear a mention of it, it sounds intriguing. And I'm like, well, let's, hey, let's dig in. And it's unusual to dig into a case and really not find a whole lot. So that's uh, kind of an interesting thing about this case is I didn't find a whole lot on it. But I, I mean, there's a ton on 1952 in general, even in just July, if you want to limit yourself to that. There's a ton of sightings at Lockbourne Air Force Base, but I was looking at one specifically on July 23rd, 1952, and there was also an accompanying sighting in Springfield, Ohio, which is, um, I don't know, something like 40 miles away or something like that, so it's pretty close, and this could be the same sighting, but then it might not be. We're not entirely sure on that because I couldn't find enough information, and believe me, I looked, (laughs) but anyways. I did find a document on NICAP, or as we say on this show, NICAP, which is a an unclassified document from the uh, SO, uh, AFSOI, or the Air Force Special Office of Investigations, which already is kind of strange, because in 1952, they had the, uh, the forward-facing, you know, the public-facing Project Blue Book, which supposedly investigated this kind of stuff, but Blue Book did not investigate this sighting, supposedly. And why that was the case and why the um, AFSOI investigated instead, uh, nobody's ever really said. But somebody found this document. It's through a FOIA request. Called, it's a spot intelligence report. Subject, Aerial Phenomena over Lockbourne Air Force Base, Ohio. Two, the Director of Special Investigations Headquarters, United States Air Force, Washington, D.C. Synopsis. Captain Eugene E. Mac, uh, McManus, yeah, Eugene E. McManus, Turner Air Force Base, Albany, Georgia, upon returning to this station from a trip to Lockbourne Air Force Base, reported that while awaiting clearance at Lockbourne, he, along with numerous people from Lockbourne Air Force Base, witnessed four objects hovering in the vicinity of Lockbourne Air Force Base in Columbus, Ohio. These objects were observed by approximately 90% of the personnel at Lockbourne Air Force Base and were reportedly observed through an observatory in Columbus, Ohio. According to Captain McManus, two F-84 type aircraft were dispatched from Lockbourne in an attempt to overtake and identify these objects with negative results. So just a side note, I don't know what their working population was at the time, So Lockbourne Air Force Base was actually opened in 1942 as an Army training center before there even was an Air Force, and it's still open today, but they changed the name to uh, Rickenbacker after the the World War I flying ace, Eddie Rickenbacker. But um, at its peak population during, uh, I think, 67 or sometime during the the Vietnam War, I remember reading there's something like 18,000 people there. Now, I doubt there was that many people working there in 1952, like probably nowhere near, but we're still talking, you know, about, like, I couldn't find how many people were actually there in 1952, but it was a major central, you know, Air Force base, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was, let's say, you know, like 5,000 people working there, you know, between civilians and military. Oh, I think it was more than that because it was home to a bunch of these uh, fighter wing and bomb wings. Yeah, yeah. So I think there were probably quite a bit of personnel. Yeah, so let's say hypothetically there's 10,000 people. That means we have 9,000 witnesses that saw this thing. Crazy. And the the thing that's crazy about that is not the number of people that saw it, but the fact that I couldn't find a single witness statement, right? This thing, it, 
it looked like it was covered up. That's, you know, I'm just going to say it. But anyways, let's get back to the report, the spot intelligence report. Okay, details of the sighting. Captain Eugene E. Mag- uh, McManus, AO668608, 811th Operation Squadron, 811th Air Base Group, Turner Air Force Base, Georgia, reported to this office on 24th of July, 1952, that on the 23rd of July, 1952, while resting, awaiting clearance from Lockbourne Air Force Base, Ohio, to Turner Air Force Base, Georgia, his attention was directed by members of the operations office, Lockbourne Air Force Base, to aerial objects located in the vicinity of Lockbourne Air Force Base and Columbus, Ohio. Captain McManus stated that these objects were easily visible to him, and that there were four in number. Captain McManus further stated that one of the objects seemed to hover above the other three objects and was not visible at all times, being hidden by the other three objects. Captain McManus stated that he observed these objects for apparently for approximately 45 minutes and described them as being round in shape and almost fluorescent white in color. Captain McManus added that he arranged himself so that he could sight along the top of a telephone pole at the object, and that the object did not seem to have any forward motion, but seemed to be hovering in one particular area. Captain McManus further stated that two F-84... Is that 84? It's kind of hard to read. The document's hard. I think it's 84. F-84 aircraft were dispatched from Lockbourne Air Force Base to try to observe and identify these objects, and that upon the pilots' return to operations, they reported that they had obtained an altitude of 43,000 feet and were still unable to identify or approach these unidentified objects. Captain McManus further added that whether personnel from look or from uh, from lock sorry <laughs> that weather personnel from Lockbourne Air Force Base set up an observer telescope the type used in reading weather balloons and that he personally observed these objects through this telescope captain mcmanus continued that with the assistance of this telescope the objects still appeared round in shape and white in color the only assistance the telescope gave was that the object seemed to be much larger. Captain McManus further stated that it was reported to Lockbourne operations while he was there that an observatory in Columbus, Ohio, through means of triangulation, had placed the height of these objects at 75,000 feet. Captain McManus stated that he did not see any vapor trails or any glow around the objects. When asked what he believed the objects to be, Captain McManus stated, I do not know. All I know is that they were round, white in color, and approximately six inches in diameter. Now, it doesn't say if it's six inches through the scope or with a naked eye, but if it's at 75,000 feet and it was six inches by the naked eye, that is huge. That I don't know right, what right. the actual calculation would be, but just you know, hold up six inches. Have you ever seen anything in the sky that was six inches across? Like, there's nothing definitely, I've ever seen. Definitely not Venus. Yeah, nothing at seventy five thousand feet. I don't that that'd be like a mile across probably. I don't know that'd be enormous. So I'm assuming he means it was six inches through the scope. Now uh, I'll finish this last little bit up here. Captain McManus is a senior pilot in the United States Air Force, having approximately twenty two hundred hours flying time, and having served on uh, active duty as a pilot for approximately ten years. 
Captain McManus is described by his fellow officers as being quiet, very conscientious, and most reliable. 3. Action. In view of the fact that these aerial objects were sighted over Lockbourne Air Force Base, Ohio, no action is contemplated at this station. And that's uh, the letter by Leo H. Johnson, it looks like, Lieutenant Colonel, USAF, uh, District Commander. So the the really interesting thing about that is, is that we have an altitude... And if they were observing it from a weather station, they were probably the scope he was using was possibly a something like a theodolite, which allows you to take like angle measurements and stuff like that. So if we could get our hands, I might actually file a, a FOIA request for these reports because mm. they they should they should have the data for this sighting. They should have like the the angular size. I agree. Yeah. They, sh- they should have not just like an approximation, like six inches. They should have a specific angular size. They should have, an, you know, the viewing angle that we have triangulation was 75,000 feet. We ha- we should have an exact size for this object with all this data that they're reporting. This The data, you just, you don't know what it is. They didn't say what it is. They basically said that they were recording it. They were recording it from a weather station. They almost certainly have all this data recorded. So it's a shame that they didn't recl- include that in this report, but um, we don't have it. All we, the only hard fact we have or hard data is the six inches, but I mean, that's probably <laughs> through the scope and that's not, I really know you want to run on. with that. So <laughs> that I could taste, I can hear him. I, I know could. there's a joke in there. <laughs> I know there is. <laughs> but I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if one of our listeners would be able, you know, leave it to a, a smarter man or a woman to, you know, if you guys have any answers, please just, Send it our way. Yeah, go ahead, Ether. I was going to say, I, I thought it was pretty funny that they're at the end of the report, they were like, well, we're not going to do anything. Is that because there's nothing to do because the sighting is over? Do they not want to make a big deal of it? Like their conclusion basically was, eh. Well, what can they do? Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, that almost kind of adds credibility to it too. Yeah. You know what I mean? The only thing we only had a couple of man-made objects that could go to that that high at that time, one of them being a weather balloon. <laughs> you know, like we didn't yeah. certainly did not have any fighter craft, fighter planes that could go to my knowledge anyways. In 1952, we didn't have anything that was, you know, armed and ready to go that high. Well, I actually found a uh, I found a document from the Air Technical Intelligence Center to the commanding officer there. There was a guard at uh, Lockbourne, and he wrote this uh, memo letter. Dear sir, it would be appreciated if you could please furnish the date and times if there were any aircraft airborne which carried lights, and if so, the description of the craft and the lights, if any, were in fact airborne. And there were a couple different dates and a couple different documents for July and August of this Air Force base requesting to know if there were any aircraft in the area. And on one of them, I found handwritten to our knowledge, there is no such aircraft. There's no man-made aircraft that, I, that I'm aware of anyways that, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think we could have really, maybe missiles or rockets we could have gotten that high. Well, missiles and rockets definitely could have gotten that high, but. Well, I know this is coming off of like, you know, this is in 52, but we're not that far away from World War II. You know, yeah. you'd think that they would take any little threat, if it were a threat, an unidentified object, you know, at that size, you know, going at that altitude. Like, would it be a blimp? Could it be carrying a bomb? We dropped a nuke, you know what I mean? So it's, or, you know, a hydrogen bomb, but 
it, it's still like I wouldn't have taken that lightly. It's odd that there. I mean, like we already said it. It's like information is not abundant on this, and you go to any other case. And you'll find a story right off the bat with a simple Google search. But, you know, you had to go through DuckDuckGo, which is, you know, a better non-restrictive search engine. But right. Wasn't that it weird? Just, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I tried on my yeah. on my cell phone and I tried on my computer through Google and I didn't find anything. It just doesn't show up. Anything in the search engines. And I don't know if it's because of the search engine optimization and how that works, the SEO algorithms or what, but you you had to go through a specific search engine to even find information. Now, the this is where this case gets weird because there's so many similar sightings. Why was this sighting investigated by the Office of uh, Special Investigations? But AF, AFOSI is the abbreviation. Now, that organization reports directly to the Secretary of the Air Force. The Secretary of the Air Force, that's the high, That's as high as up as it gets. The secret, Secretary reports directly to the President. So they're at the very, very top of the chain. They're higher up than even generals. Generals report to the Secretary of the Air Force. There's something very hush-hush about this, right? And I looked up exactly what they're responsible for, and apparently they're responsible for criminal investigations, counterintelligence, and protective service operations worldwide outside of the traditional military chain of command. They proactively, AF, AFOSI identifies, investigates, and neutralizes serious criminal, terrorist, and espionage threats to personnel and resources of the Air Force, Space Force, and the U.S. Department of Defense, thereby protecting the national security of the United States. Now, that was a fact sheet from like 2017 or 2018. So, the, I mean, I doubt that they said Space Force back in 1952. That organization was formed in 1948. It was modeled after the FBI. And you have to wonder why this case? Why did they get this case and they didn't give it to Blue Book like they did all the other cases? So, you know, and uh, some of their capabilities... Uh, that they listed that they uh, that they use AFO AFOSI for is protect critical technologies and information, detect and mitigate threats, provide global specialized services, conduct major criminal investigations, and engage foreign adversaries and threats offensively. But why would this organization apply to this sighting and not some of the other ones that were happening on a daily basis? I don't know. There was a similar sighting in Springfield, Ohio, which is about, yeah, 45 miles away that I mentioned earlier. And I was wondering if it was the same objects, but neither one of those actually turned up in the Blue Book files. The only cases I found in the Blue Book files that sort of are similar was it, they weren't actually the cases files were not in the Blue Book files, but I did find this in a list of Blue Book unsolved cases. You can find lists, like there's a list that the Air Force put out of all of the uh, the cases that are marked as unidentified or unsolved. And I found two that are sort of pertaining to this. There was one on July 17th, 1952. And Lockburn, Ohio, 11 a.m., witnessed Air National Guard employees. One light, like a big star, was seen for three hours, but disappeared when an aircraft approached. Also seen on the night of July 20, 22, and 23. So that's in the list, but it, the files does it's not there. And I couldn't find any other mention of this other than this one little blurb. And also, I, we have, I actually found something uh, in Project Blue Book. Did you? Okay, let me get to the other one. And then on July 18, 1952, on Lockburn, Ohio, at 9:10 p.m., witnesses 
Um, T slash slash Sergeant Mahone, A uh, Airman Third Class, T slash Sergeant, I don't know what that means, but I think A slash 3C means Airman Third Class Jennings. One amber-colored elliptical-shaped object with a small flame at the rear periodically increased in brightness. It moved very fast for one... Uh, for half one and a half minutes, giving off a resonant beat sound. But I looked in the files. Maybe I missed them. I could not find those files, like in the Blue Book files. So that's very strange. <laughs> yeah, Agent Ether, you said you found stuff there. Yeah, actually, I found a detailed report on the July 17th incident in 1952, and it stated that there okay. was a circular object like a star smaller than a plane on the horizon. The outer rim gave off an orange and green glow, and it left a trail of red light as it left, which took approximately eight seconds. And it also moved from side to side when it wasn't stationary. This was reported by William Stevenson, who was a sergeant major in the Airborne Squadron at Ohio National Guard and a commanding officer. And the report isn't clear because there's actually two witnesses and one is redacted. And it's not clear if the redacted officer is actually the commanding officer. But both were recently discharged from the Air Force and both were working in a civilian capacity at the Air Force base. Where did you find that? Because I looked on the, the Fold 3 and there's nothing for Lockbourne. I don't know. I had... <laughs> you know how it is. You look in so many places. Yeah. Um, I'm looking here, and it was page 187, and the Blue Book files. Okay. Well, so if you go to if you go to Blue Book, you can actually search, and uh -huh. it, they're searchable documents. So I think I put in like Lockbourne Air Force Base, Ohio, 1952, and this popped up. Okay. So um, and it was 10 miles north and about 5,000 feet high. And that, that is the details that I have. I was looking at it. Uh, you go through there, you click on the year, and then you click on the month, and it lists everything by location. And by location, that one's not uh, Lockbourne, Lockbourne Air Force Base. I think sometimes it's disorganized. It could be. That, you know? that could be the case, yeah. Maybe maybe this way is not the best way to browse them. Maybe it's best to browse them It's you know some other way. I don't know. But it's, I mean, there's nothing for Columbus. There's nothing for anywhere near there. So it's... It's, uh, I'm glad you found that, actually. I didn't think to do that kind of a search. Well, I also have a statement from uh, July 21st. Is that the Columbus one? Well, I mean, there, the one I started looking at was the 23rd, but there's been, there were sightings like a daily basis on July, uh, every day. July 21st, there was an observer in uh, south of Columbus who saw what she described as a spaceship. And it was a neighbor and the same eyewitness, William Stevenson, and she had looked through some field glasses and they both said it looked like a spaceship. And that's all the detail huh. that I found on that. Weird. That's what they used to call binoculars, by the way, is field glasses. Field glasses. Say, why don't you go pick me up a pair of field glasses, honey? <laughs> <laughs> then come home and cook me some dinner. That's what they, That's how they used to talk in the 50s. Hey, don't cancel me at it, you know? I wasn't back. I didn't say it back then. That wasn't me. <laughs> I love how they dressed in the 50s. So dapper. Oh, yeah. I love the style from back then. Hell, yeah. But all right. So and that the amount of cigarettes. That was the short little thing that I had on that case. And I, I got tons and tons of other stuff. But before I get to some other stuff, I'll turn it over to uh, if, if uh, one of the other agents wants to talk about some other stuff. I think Agent Ether had some more UFO sightings at Lockbourne to talk about. 
There was a report in, in Ohio in 1952 on July 17th or 18th by the Air National Guard who saw a light like a big star that disappeared when an aircraft approached. Yeah, I saw that one too. Yeah. Yeah, that one, that one I didn't notate because it's so vague that it, it could be anything. It could just be another airplane. It, there's not really much to go on for that one, but it is interesting. There was a, it's inter- what's also interesting, and I'm not sure if we pointed this out already is, I mean, we kind of did, but the fact that I just want to point this out to stir critical thinking and all that good stuff, but like July, what the significance of that month or that summer, it seemed like there was a huge spike in eyewitness reports and stuff like that. And I couldn't find a whole lot. Well, I did find one site and I, I'm hesitant because, you know, I don't know if it's exactly like, you know, you could trust it per se. I mean, we were talking briefly about it at the beginning of the show, but uh, this acronym, the F-U-F-O-R, FUFOR, um, I'm calling it. I don't know if that's how you want to call it, but it's apparently that's a, another term for like an index for UFO sighting so it's like a little index for submitted uh eyewitness accounts i believe so i need to double check that but from what i found on it and sorry to to drag it on a little bit but i found a two eyewitness accounts from an air force base in rapid city south dakota uh it was around july 9th 1952 and it's weird that so the event that happened in Lockbourne wasn't that uh, that was in that was July twenty third, correct? Yeah, July twenty third. Yeah, yeah. So this again, this happened before that, and they reported three milky white discs traveling at uh, you know about like thirty thousand to forty thousand feet, and it was reported by two airmen that were just lying apparently in a field on their backs, just kind of chilling out. <laughs> which is kind of odd at that time. Well, what you, you know what they were the, really doing? <laughs> <laughs> I know I didn't want to oh. imply it. And I was like, Sinners. To, it's like, all right. So you just a couple bros hanging out and lying on their backs and out in the field, you know, doing what they doing. And there's definitely no marijuana involved. <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> Might right? have been some beer or something though. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to assume. Right, and then but they were off the east-west runway, and they that was when they observed the objects, which appeared to between three to four inches in diam diameter, about at arm's length. I'm like I'm saying I think that's what they described it with is that they were showing you know how wide it was with their arms when it says that, but but they said it was moving faster than any jet they've ever seen, and the direction that they were traveling in was so rapid that they would drop altitude like like you know at a drop of a dime and then regain it in you know half a second like they were just booking it and but the, each object was reported individually for about like 5 seconds and so I couldn't find that story even though trying to find the actual like the airmen that reported that there's nothing you can find that that supports that. So you try to go to this FUFOR index to try to like back it up because that's the source it's credited to and it nothing turns up and it's like, there's nothing it's, I don't know. It's just weird. It's bugging me. So take it with a grain of uh, salt or whatever, but I, don't know, I just thought that was interesting and there's more reports. 
I looked up FUFOR, uh, FUFOR, which is the Fund for UFO Research. It was a UFO research group based in Alexandria, Virginia, founded in 1979. It stated its goal was to further the scholarly research of UFOs and the extraterrestrial hypothesis and to secure the release of alleged classified U.S. government documents pertaining to these. Um, It looks like it's defunct. It hasn't been active since 2011. And according to its own promotional material, from its founding in 1979 to 2006, it provided over $700,000 in research grants and supported numerous UFO-related investigations, including investigations into the secrecy behind the MJ-12 papers and the U.S. Air Force's Project Blue Book. And the directors, the first director was Bruce Maccabee, who he's somewhat credible. He's, uh, you know, he's like a physicist and um, he's very much in favor of UFOs to the point where he's probably not all that objective, but he usually he backs his stuff up with actual data. And then Richard Hall and Don Berliner were uh, were the other two directors. Oh, there's your source. You were wondering where... Uh... Berliner was. Yeah. There you go. All right. There you go. Ich bin ein Berliner. So then you would say this This is pretty... The thing I would wonder about that in. is who's... Bruce McAbee was definitely not giving away $700,000 in research grants. So who is behind this research group? Who started this and who's funding it? It's obviously somebody with a lot of resources. Um, and, you know, is. If they're looking for something specific, especially stuff like MJ-12, they may not have been all that objective, but maybe not. I don't know. I, I can't say I don't know that much about the organization, but that's what I found with a quick Wikipedia search. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh, it's way better than... I never use Wikipedia. Not enough. It's terrible. But uh, sometimes, sometimes I'll jump on Wikipedia just for a laugh. Because <laughs> like the way, the way that they present some information is just like... All right. Well, there's an objective here. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, well, yeah. I won't go too go, far into it. But, <laughs> but it, it is strange, though, that in July of this, you know, why, why in particular is there a heightened, you know, spike in reports that, I mean, I, I know we don't have an answer for that, but I, I would like to hear from you guys what you would think that, you know, what could be the case. Cause I, I have more. Air Force bases like New Mexico. Uh, there is also one, if I'm not mistaken, that was in Korea. And there's a couple in Korea. Yeah, there's just a lot, and it's all ranging within like a build-up time to you know Lockbourne, and it's like you know July 13th. Or sorry, taking that back. I remember reading um, a lot. You know, when I was doing research for this here podcast. Uh, Within those two months, um, there was something like over 400 like accounts of people witnessing supposedly UFOs or something, you know, and like like that's more than like the previous couple of years combined. I think just in those two months, yeah, right. Like it's crazy. It's, it yeah, and but this is happening in a span of you know days. I mean, this is I yeah. mean weeks. It it's weird. I mean, at least these reports are. I mean, you had the the one that I was mentioning earlier was July 9th. And then July 14th at the Hollow Man uh, Air Force Base in New Mexico, um, there was, you know, unidentified objects reported there. And it was during a, a you know, a missile test. And it, they scrambled jets just to, you know, get on site and get on ready. And it was, again, they witnessed milky, you know, UFOs, like white lights. So it just, 
it's crazy. They were, they had pips on their radars. They they saw something, and it's just it's crazy. Why would would the Air Force have anything to gain? Not just the Air Force, but the military to say that there's you know aliens and or at least make something up to fund something. I mean, I don't know. Like I'm just kind of farting out an idea there, but. I just, again, I'd like to hear from what you guys would think that what would they stand to gain or, you know, what the hell is the point of it? Well, I think it's interesting, these scrambled jets. That's always, that's always something that catches my attention when, uh, when they, when they use that resource to chase after something. Is it, you know, um, because it's a matter of national security? I'm always thinking, well, what's the primary reason you would, you would scramble jets to, to find an object. If the object is that high up in the atmosphere and you know you're not going to be able to, you know, trace it that high, why why are you chasing after it at all? They didn't know what the atmosphere was or what the uh, altitude was necessarily in the beginning. They may have figured that out after the fact with, like, triangulation methods. Sure, sure. So they, I mean, you uh, you get something that's in airspace where it's not supposed to be. Remember, you got, like, civilian airplanes they all get clearance to do a specific flight path. You have to file your flight path ahead of time. And if you deviate from that flight path, you're not supposed to do that. And if there's like an unidentified craft in your airspace, as the military, you need to go check that out, you know, because it's a credible threat. You don't know what it could be. It could be like the Soviets sending a spy plane. It could be, you know, some kind of attack. You don't know. You just have to go look at it. It could be anything. And But at what point do you call off the planes? You know, they're they're up there, they're flying around, they're looking for this object. At what point are you like, well, I guess you should come on home. Have you run well, out they, of fuel? I mean, because the objects know? take off. I mean, they outmaneuver them. They they just <laughs> bail. I mean, there's it's it's crazy because you hear these stories where some you know they're not slouch pilots. They're actually like either battle hardened or they're just they've been in the military for numerous years and they're they're not a rookie pilot so and they're credible people and you know for some of the reports where they've actually engaged and try to maneuver it they always get outmaneuvered something always just it just disappears or you know they end it in this case we (laughs) don't know we don't know what happened after the planes were deployed there's like no information it just says that they were uh right Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean that 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 New Mexico one that they they were scrambling or the jets. It was actually a uh, it was a B twenty nine mission, and like they were in air when these objects were like approaching it, and they were able. I can't find the actual picture, but I guess it was two hundred feet from where film was taken of it. But I just gotta like find that image, and then my I can be happy about that. But. Again, it's just they end it though. Like, that's the that's the creepy thing I always find just so amazing is that it's never on our terms. Where we're like, all right, get out of here. You know, don't come around here. It's always them that you know it, whatever it is is like okay, all right, let's stop playing with them and just bounce. Like bounce. <laughs> it has to. It's it's joyriding. They're probably they're probably just joyriding. They're just coming in and there's it's like. 
it's like a dare of some sort. Like, oh, I bet you can't fly through Earth. You know, <laughs> like you always get shot down. They're going to kill you. They're crazy. And it's like, oh, no, watch this. Watch this. I'll take you guys through a little thrill ride. But, you know, sorry, that's stupid. <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> just farting around there. <laughs> We're done. The show is basically done. Sorry. I was just <laughs> what are you talking about? The show's done. I still got plenty of stuff to talk about. <laughs> oh, I apologize. I thought, I, I don't know. I, sh- I, I shall shut up. All right. Well, I found while I was looking through, I was digging through everywhere I could look to try to find like the witness statements. Like I said earlier for this, for the one on the 23rd, if you know 90% of the base saw it, you would expect there to be some witness statements. And given how high up it was and that it was a fairly populated area, you'd expect to see some civilian statements too, but I couldn't find any of those either. Your best bet would probably be to go to like a library in the area and look up like a microfilm of some publications from the time because probably the newspapers and magazines from the day would have some sort of accounts of this thing if people saw it. Oh, idea. I'm really far from there, so I can't necessarily do that. No, but can't you pay (laughs) someone to do that? Don't they have these like gig things? Where, what are they called where you pay someone to do little tasks? Fiverr? Uber. Huh. No, not no. Fiverr, you I know, you, go, you pay somebody like five bucks, and they'll do like you know, they'll say your name yeah. with a sign or something. Kruger's got like, it. Kruger's, oh, okay. And then you, yeah, you pay yeah, them, yeah. and they'll go do little tasks for you. So you could like advertise. You could get someone to go. DoorDash. No, not DoorDash. Oh. But that would be a a great way to find out because. Yeah, I would I would love to go to the source and find some some newspapers, some media articles. I'll do it myself. I'll just jump people in the market. <laughs> hey, welcome and subscribe. Sorry. <laughs> I wonder if you could contact the li- I didn't think of it until just now, but I wonder if you could contact the library and ask them to find the microfish and get like get like an actual PDF of the microfish or something that you could look at oh, yourself. Yeah. I wonder if they would do that. Well, <laughs> it ain't going to help us now because <laughs> I didn't think of it earlier. So <laughs> we could still do it. I mean, just bolster, just yeah. update it up. <laughs> you know, we just come back, revisit it. All right, hit the pause button. We'll start again in three weeks. <laughs> well, there's actually, if you think about it, no, the it, case is never closed. All right. There's the case so is much open. out there that's on the microfish, anyways. Mm-hmm. It would be really great to digitize it all just, you know, for historical reasons. There actually is uh, an individual who does stuff like that to try to archive things. Um, oh, what's his name? He's he's active in various places, and he's uh, he goes under um, Isaac Coy. That's it, I S A A C K O I, which he uses as an alias. Um, he's Coy. He doesn't want his real. He's like he works in England as like a barrister, or whatever that is, like a lawyer or something. And he doesn't want any professional repercussions, so he's anonymous. He's been doing this for years, and I'd say he's, he's more or less like a English equivalent of you know John Greenwald Jr. Basically, trying to get all these documents out there. You can look up his website, and you can find tons of resources on there, just for free. You know, just free access for everybody. And he'll get volunteers to go and like scan documents and stuff into various you know private collections and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so that uh, that's maybe I'll post a link to that, which I probably won't because I probably forget. But uh, let's get back to um, so I, when I was looking into this, I found a couple of really interesting things when I was digging through the files. So one of the, I found a history of the Northeast Air Command. From the 1st of January, 1952 to the 30th of June, 1952. Now, I know it doesn't include July. It's just before, but still. 
In the intelligence summary, it had a little blurb here that I found highly interesting. He says, A number of unidentified aircraft and other unidentified aerial phenomena were sighted throughout the Northeast Air Command in closely adjacent areas during this reporting period. Some of these sightings were explained, but the majority remained unidentified. Now, this was a classified document that became unclassified at some point. And the reason I find that highly interesting is because the public-facing parts of the Air Force, whether it's a general doing a press conference or Project Blue Book or whatever it was, they always said that the majority of cases, that most cases were identified, weather balloons, Venus, and whatnot. You guys know about this stuff. And I've, I've never seen a statement that said, yeah, most of this stuff we cannot explain. They would always say, eh, there's one or two cases where we don't have enough information. And then maybe like another one where maybe we don't know what it is, but we could probably figure it out if we had more information. So they always kind of just use that excuse. But this is, I, I don't recall ever seeing them say before that most of this stuff, we have no idea what it is. I found another document So the CIA released a bunch of UFO documents. It's like 900 pages, give or take. And, you know, I didn't have a chance to go through all 900 pages, unfortunately. But I did find a really interesting little bit here about UFOs. And this is from the 1st of August, 1952, from the Deputy Assistant Director slash SI, Acting Chief, Weapons and Equipment Division, Flying Saucers. One, pursuant to your request for overall evaluation of flying saucers and associated reports, the following is pertinent. A, out of 1,000 to 2,000 such reports received by ATIC, a large percentage are clearly phony. An equivalent, uh, equally large percentage can be satisfactorily explained as known flights of currently operational U.S. equipment, aircraft, weather, weather balloons, etc., and many others are undoubtedly of natural phenomena, meteorites, clouds, aberration of light caused by thermal inversion or reflections, etc. B, less than 100 reasonably credible, credible, <laughs> less than 100, kill the wabbit, yeah, kill the wabbit, <laughs> less than 100 reasonably credible reports remain unexplainable at this time. Regarding these reports, there is no pattern of specific sizes, configurations, characteristics, performance, or location. The sources of these reports are generally no more or less credible than the sources of the other categories. It is probable that if complete information were available for presently unexplainable reports, they too could be evaluated into categories as indicated in A above. 2. Nonwithstanding the foregoing tentative fact, so long as a series of reports remains unexplainable, interplanetary aspects and alien origin not being thoroughly excluded from consideration, caution requires that intelligence continue coverage of the subject. It is recommended that the CIA surveillance of subject matter in coordination with proper authorities of primarily operational concern at ATIC be continued. It is strongly urged, however, that no indication of CIA interest or concern reach the press or public in view of their probable alarmist tendencies to accept such interest as confirmatory of the soundness of unpublished facts in the hands of the U.S. The undersigned has arranged with the commanding officer of the Air Technical Intelligence Center at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, for a thorough and comprehensive briefing related to this subject on the 8th of August, 1952. 
Subsequent to obtaining full details, uh, um, detains, a detailed analysis will be prepared and forwarded. And that was by uh, written by a dude named Edward Taus, T-A-U-S-S. There's a couple of really interesting points to this. So, for example, in point number uh, in 1A of 1,000 to 2,000 such reports, shouldn't they have like a more specific number, <laughs> you know? And they talk about a large percentage being phony. What percentage? They don't say. Like, I've looked through a lot of these Blue Book reports, and there are some phony sounding ones that, you know, we've even talked about, but a lot of them seem legit and they don't say they're not that specific. Right. And they go through all this, ah, they're all weather balloons or whatever. And they're like, but you know, just in case we should probably still investigate this stuff. So which is it? Are they all phony or are they going to waste a tremendous amount of resources investigating it? It doesn't, it doesn't line up to me why they would, um, and what they'd want to continue. It's in the same document. They're saying, Okay, well, it's all nonsense, but we should probably still investigate it anyways. But obviously, the most interesting bit is like, okay, just don't let them know that we're actually involved. And, you know, for a long time, the CIA said, no, we got nothing to do with this because they don't basically they don't want people to panic. That was like the a really interesting part for me as it, well. It also sounds like they didn't want to lend uh, credibility right. to the whole situation. Yeah, they're trying to downplay it like yeah. they always do. But if they're saying there's nothing there, then why are they saying, yeah, we still want to investigate it? We just want to pretend like we're not, you know? It's just such a it's little... It's to quell our, our hysteria. Yeah. And when you dig <laughs> through the files, this is the kind of really interesting stuff that you find that like, okay, if they were not taking it seriously, then why would they write a memo like this? So obviously the government was taking this very seriously, different, you know, even different sections of the government. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah. You yeah. know, the CIA is very different than, let's say, the Air Force or the FBI or whatever. You remember in this day and age as well as that, you know, you don't have to be, you know, genius to point this out, is that this was where that generation of we know what's best for you. And that, that was usually the people in power, right? Or, you know, whether it was segregated bathrooms or, like, it was, you know, domestic abuse when it comes to psychological and physical. It was just the way of life that it was. So, the government saying, you know, you don't need to know this and basically just lie to your face and not give a shit while doing it makes perfect sense. Back then in, in the 50s, you know, the night this is just after World War II, and... Everybody had a much higher level of trust in the government, right? This was, everybody was a patriot. Everybody trusted the government. And when the government said, we'll take care of it, people said, okay, we trust you to take care of it. We trust the military. We trust the government to make the right decision. And there's been a lot of shenanigans in the meantime where people have lost that trust. But uh, in the time, you know, if the government said, all right, these UFOs, there's nothing to them, then people would say, okay, I believe you, Mr. Air Force guy. I trust that you're saying the right thing, you know, telling us the truth. So th I think that's also a big part of this is times were very different back then. I can't even imagine there's, <laughs> this is a, an age we live in that, that's quite the opposite. A lot of people have a complete distrust in their government and certainly don't feel positive about, uh, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess I should have started with that as saying that the amount of trust that the people had with the government where they could lie to everybody's face and whether it was a lie or not, you know what I'm saying is just the story and narrative that is fact now is that they could get away with that. And there wasn't anyone to question like that, that fact. So. Yeah. But yeah, no. I'd- also from the CIA documents, I found a little, a couple more interesting things. Uh, another little quote here. It must be mentioned that the outside knowledge of agency interest in flying saucers carries the risk of making the problem more serious in the public mind that it already is, which we and the Air Force agree must be avoided. So part of this conversation is that they don't want their detection channels to be over flooded with reports. Because if there really was an attack and everybody's reporting like a UFO that's not part of that attack, then it's going to be, they're not going to know where to defend the attack from, basically. That was one of the, back then they didn't have a sophisticated, you know, radar and that kind of stuff. So they did rely on reports more than they do today. So I think that was a bit of a legitimate concern. But on the other hand, instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt, you have to wonder Okay, uh, (laughs) let me read this again. It must be mentioned that outside knowledge of agency interest in flying saucers carries the risk of making the problem more serious in the public mind than it already is. So they're admitting that it's a problem. They're admitting that it's real, right? Sometimes you got to read between the lines a little bit with this stuff. But I find this to be a highly interesting statement from at the time it was a classified document. It was, here's another little bit. It was found that the ATIC study is probably valid if the purpose is limited to a case-by-case explanation. However, that study does not solve the more fundamental aspect of the problem. These aspects are to determine definitely the nature of the various phenomena which are causing these sightings, or to discover the means by which these causes and their visual or electronic effects may be identified immediately. The CIA consultants stated that these solutions would probably be found on the margins or just beyond the frontiers of our present knowledge in the fields of atmospheric, ionospheric, and extraterrestrial phenomenon, with the added possibility that our present dispersal of nuclear waste products might also be a factor. So I don't know if you guys caught that little bit, but they're basically saying that in order to deal with this, our current technology doesn't really, we're going to have to come up with some new technology in order to deal with this. And they also mentioned extraterrestrial phenomena as if it's a real thing, <laughs> right? They're not trying to say it's not real. They're saying that that's one of the possible solutions, essentially. So it, you could interpret this in a couple of different ways, but one way you could interpret this is that whoever wrote this particular CIA document is treating this as if some of these sightings are extraterrestrial. And I find that, I mean, that's one of the closest things I've ever found in one of these documents to a smoking gun. I find it very, very interesting. Again, you got to read between the lines and you got to really dig through these documents to find this kind of stuff. We're going to say something, Agent Ether. She's nodding at me over there. (laughs) I'm agreeing with you. Okay. Very interesting. Maybe she's just falling asleep because these, I I apologize to anybody who's, hey, maybe you put this on to go to sleep at night. That's fine. You know what I mean? (laughs) If it serves its purpose, then I'm happy if you're happy. But no, but sometimes like it's so much more useful to quote the actual document than to just kind of talk about it and state my opinion because then, you know, you guys get to hear 
what I'm reading to form my opinion. And you could disagree or you could agree. You could look them up yourself or whatever. But I think it's just more interesting than me just reading something and then summarizing that and saying my opinion. I think it's very important to look at the source documents and I love doing it. And there's not a whole lot of shows that will actually, I've never actually heard a source document like this read on a show. So I think it's, I don't know. It's a thing that I like to do. Maybe people don't like it. Maybe they do. I don't know, but I love it. I love these documents. I love digging through them and just reading all this stuff. Cause you find little tidbits like this that are just so crazy that you're like, wait, 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 what did they say? (laughs) They said what now? And you know, I've never heard anything like this. They don't talk about this stuff on the history channel or, you know, whatever. I'm kind of convinced the History Channel has been set up mostly for misinformation or for World War II porn. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a thing? (laughs) Well, no, it's a term used. So, like, when the History Channel first, like, came about, the vast majority of the the content that they were putting out was World War II stuff. Let me close down that tab. I just opened up Pornhub right there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, not not what you were talking about. Okay, I will not I will not do that no, search. No, not at all. <laughs> no, I wasn't talking about actual porn. I have a I have a couple more things to talk about. So we talked recently about the Mantell incident, which was on uh, January eighth, nineteen forty seven. On the seventh of January, uh, nineteen uh, no nineteen uh, January eighth, nineteen forty eight. I think. Oh no, wait, yeah, wait, wait. What was it? Let me look that up again. Yeah. I think. Yeah, it was, 19, it was 1948. 1948, yeah. I think I, I wrote 1947. I was like, wait, wait, I thought, I swear that was 1948. I must have must have done a done a typo there. But the, just the day before, on January 7th, there was a sighting at Lockbourne Air Force Base at 7.15 p.m. Multiple witnesses saw a bright object to the southwest of the airfield, and the object appeared and disappeared intermittently. Um, a pilot named Captain Charles E. McGee with that, I mean, I love that name, by the way. There's some of these names you run across, you're like, right? <laughs> Chuck E. McGee. I mean, come on, dude. That's like, that's a man right I wish, there. <laughs> I wish I had a cool Sounds name like a like pilot. If, hey, if you yeah, show up, I can see that. <laughs> you show up to the, the bar where those pilots hang out, you know, that's who you're getting your ass kicked by is Chuck E. McGee. That's the guy that's punching you in the face right there. But he saw it on landing approach when he was at 1,800 feet altitude. And the object was about 3,000 feet altitude to the southwest at about four miles away. And another pilot, Albert uh, Pickering, was awakened by an object that was about the size of a C-47 or larger that dropped out of the clouds 10,000 feet above. And the tower saw this object drop out of the clouds as well. It made three full 360-degree circles over a runway, uh, about 30 to 40 seconds per circle, which apparently would be... um, or in these circles were about two miles in diameter, and that would be approximately 700 miles an hour in seven Gs, I guess, is what it said. But uh, it left a luminous amber-colored tail or exhaust five times its length. And we also saw that in one of the sightings in 1952 that we were talking about was with that amber color in the tail. Um, then it went to another location, made more turns and circles, and then it disappeared into the overcast for a minute and then reappeared. It appeared to touch down on the grass extension past the end of the runway for 10 seconds, and then it flew up and left into the overcast. You're like, huh. And I think we might have actually talked about that one, but we didn't have as much detail as I found here with this this time. So there's, let's see, I found I found this document from, I think this is from Project, yeah, this is Project Blue Book. And it's a really short, really short file. It's just... Um, uh, it's just two pages. It's got the cover page 
And then it's got like a two paragraph little summary here. So this one was on the 7th of January, uh, 1948 at 1925. So I'm guessing that uh, this was, a, it's, it's not, the other one I found was 715, it said, but this is um, 725, but um, it says presumably near Lockbourne, and this is the observer Albert R. Pickering. So this is probably the similar report. This is his specific statement. And he said the number of objects was one, and the, uh, the distance was three to five miles, and the altitude is about 10,000 feet, the speed greater than 500 miles an hour, the direction of flight 120 degrees to the east. It climbed and descended vertically, performed circles. It circled one place for a duration of three 360-degree turns, then moved to another position and again circled and uh, made no sound. It was larger than a C-47. It was amber in color. The shape was round or oval and uh, had an amber trail. The height, over, the height of the overcast was about 10,000 feet and it occasionally entered the overcast. So that's the that's the cover page. Now let's read the actual report here, which is pretty short as far as these files go. When first sighted around 1925 Eastern Standard Time, the object appeared to hover in one position for quite some time, moving very little. It disappeared once for about a minute, presumably entering the overcast. After entering below the overcast, it circled one place for the duration of three 360-degree turns, then moved to another position and circled for some more. Turns required approximately 30 to 40 seconds each, the diameter estimated about 2 miles, and moving from one place to another, a tail approximately the same color, amber, as the object appeared, which seemed to be about 5 times the length of the object. The shape of the object was either round or oval, and appeared about the size of a C-47 plane, just before disappearing, it came very near to the ground, stayed about 10 seconds, then climbed back to its original position at a very fast rate of speed, leveled off and disappeared into the overcast, 10,000 feet, heading 120 degrees. Its speed was greater than 500 miles an hour in level flight, visible for some 20 minutes. No noise or sound could be heard. The color of the object itself was an amber light, but the intensity was not sufficient to obscure the outline of the configuration, which was approximately round. During the up-and-down movement, no maneuvering took place. Motions like that of an elevator climbing and descending vertically. The exhaust trail was noticeable only during forward speed. At one time, the object appeared to touch the ground. Note, appeared approximately three to five miles away from Lockbourne in immediate vicinity of Commercial Point. Reports from Clinton County Airport, Godman Field, and from pilot of plane in vicinity of Columbus indicate the distance to be much greater. And note on reliability, see uh, incidents 30, 30B, and 30C corroborating accounts. So we won't get into those corroborating accounts because... We're, uh, you know, we're already going long enough here and um, probably gone on long enough about that case. So, you know, there's a couple different versions going on there. But um, it was uh, the, the thing that surprised me about this is that it was in 1948, but it, it was very similar to a lot of the things seen later on in 1952 to some of them. There were a couple of different kind of accounts, but one of them did mention an object very similar to this one. 
So I guess, you know, they're coming, they're back, or maybe they never yeah. left. I don't know. Well, you know what? You know, one of the things that actually kind of stands out, because I, I read that same report, and um, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, what, one of the things that stands out to me is that he was woken up not by noise, but by the light. Yeah. So, like, it must have been a pretty substantial light that that yeah, thing was that off. Yeah, that was a beam, man. Right? Yeah. Boop, 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 boop. It's such <laughs> a strange thing. And we didn't have anything at that time that could move up and down like that. And to my knowledge, we still don't. Although, oh, hell no. I don't know. We might have something. Right. But, I mean, the way they're describing it, it gives you the impression that it's going up and down very quickly. Like, you know, and it's changing direction. It's It'll go up and yeah. hover and whatever. And it's not really making a whole lot of noise. I don't know, man. It's just, I don't think we had anything that yeah, could do that in right. 1952. Well, well the only thing you why, why would you drive a craft like that? What is the point? Well, why yeah. would you go bug, yeah, that one particular person? I think it's a legit, like, it's it could be an incident where their craft is failing and they're like, oh, shit, <laughs> flat tire, worst place to get a flat yeah. tire. <laughs> and it, it's just bad timing. And then they get the hell out of there as soon as they repair it. Well, or, my space tire know. is flat. Right, <laughs> I got a space flat. Well, to, to me, to be quite honest, by the way, like some of these uh, vehicles or these these objects, whatever, unidentified flying object, whatever it is, by the way, some of them seem to be moving. It almost it seems like they're doing like some kind of a study, like they're observing something. You know what I mean? Whatever, whatever, whatever they're studying, like, like, you know, when like, like reports were, you know, there's been multiple reports of like, you know, the, the craft, like what we just talked about, like they'd go to an area and then circle for a couple of rotations. They move to another area, circle for another a couple of rotations. They go up and down, like, like, like what they're doing doesn't necessarily make sense to us. But the only thing I could, you know, draw from this would be like, they must be observing something like that we're not aware of or, or we, we just don't, we haven't put two and two together, I guess, or whatever, you know what I mean? But yeah. I mean, that's kind of one of the things I get out, I, I get out of it from the movements they're making, you know? That exact same thing occurred to me. And looking through the files and reports, it seems to me that an awful lot of them did seem to center around Air Force bases, you know, military bases. So if it was somebody from somewhere else visiting us, the first thing they would want to do is check out our military capacity to see, okay, can we come and study these guys without danger of being shot down? Are the or are you know are they primitive or do they have the weapons to where we have to be a little more careful? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. on, on the other hand, you know, if if you had I don't know, let's say a metal detector and you took it back in time a thousand years, somebody a thousand years ago, if they saw you in a field using that, they would have absolutely no idea what you were doing. They would look at That's you. That's a good point. They would, they would not have a clue. So, I mean, it's possible that whatever this was, was doing something that we, we have no idea. Like it wouldn't make sense to us out of context unless we were explained to us what it was doing, you know? But I mean, I guess at the end of the day, we really don't know, but a lot of these, really, a lot of these 1952 sightings were, seemed to center around military bases and centers. So I imagine our military at the time, they were probably crapping their pants at all these sightings. Like, oh shit, we can't, <laughs> we can't do a thing. We can't stop them. We can't intercept them. We can't do anything. Right. To them, you know? Well, what if our abilities to reverse engineer anything is not as easy as we, we could assume it would be. So like, what if these crafts or this situation is from like fallen aircraft uh, and, and we just, you know, figure out how to lift it up, pilot it for a little bit or whatever the hell it might be. 
And again, it's just like we lose control of it and we don't have the means to replicate it. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I don't know. It's just, it might, it's, it might be, yeah, you know, that's a good point. It might be because I've heard stories about, you know, alien artifacts that have been found, like that have been here for a long time. They're very, very ancient, you know, and like, uh, you know, I've heard stories of, of different governments, you know, taking control of these. And then like, you know, it could be that they're, you know, it's a pilot just trying to learn how to fly the damn thing. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, <laughs> right. You know, and that's why they're doing these random movements and stuff and stuff that doesn't necessarily make you sense. Know, I was going to gonna say that. Yeah. But I didn't want to go back to the space flat again, you know, the flat tire in space theory where it's, <laughs> it's just like, Oh shit. Oh God. No. All right. Stop. No. But why did, why is it dead? Why are we here, man? Go, go co-pilot to pilot. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, get the fuck out of here. There's, we've looked at a couple of cases that, I mean, like the Hexburg case, for example, could, fit into that though it could be a, uh-huh. a captured craft that we were investigating you know that we were trying to figure out how to pilot it maybe and as far as like reverse uh-huh. engineering something i mean we barely just discovered nuclear power and we barely just discovered radio waves and that kind of stuff like if you're trying to reverse a radio but you didn't even know what a radio wave was you had no concept that that was even a thing you're not going to be able to reverse engineer it or even figure out what the damn thing is for right so if, mm-hmm. if we captured some sort of extraterrestrial craft, the technology on that would probably seem like magic to us, or it would use science that we don't, it use, uses things Correct. Yeah. from science uh, that we're materials. not even aware of yet, that we haven't even discovered, right? you know, but on the other I hand, mean, I could, maybe they figured uh, it out. I don't know. And that's just a game theory. Yeah. But I mean, so that's a pretty much all I had for this week's episode. Do you guys have anything else to add? Uh, I mean, I mean we, shit. I mean, we can go on and on about all the different sightings in 1952, but I mean, as far as the uh, sightings surrounding this case and stuff, I mean, I, we, I think we talked about pretty much all I was looking into, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we'll get there's yeah, I, I so many good sightings in 52. I'm sure we'll get back to them eventually. Well, and it's funny. This is one of those, this is one of those years. I'm sorry to interject, but like, this is one of those years. We're like, you could have a podcast last like a couple years and just an episode, just about stuff that happened in that year. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Just it's talking like, individual cases. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Going on oh, deep man. dives like, of that. Yeah. Like, like, like I said before at the beginning, like this year is one of those hotbed moments where there's so much that happened. It's crazy how many sightings happened and important ones too, you know, like, but yeah, yeah. That's pretty much all I, all I have to say, say about it. All right. Well. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can really help us out by giving us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts and suggesting the show to your friends. Keep it strange.